Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and my guest again today is director Sheldon Epps, and this is the third and final part of our recent conversation regarding his long and successful career as he relates it in his new book, My Own Directions, A Black Man's Journey in the American Theater. If you missed the previous episodes, it may be helpful to listen to those before joining us for this one. This episode is made possible in part by the generous support of producer-level patron Tracy Wellens, and I also want to give a special shout-out to our newest patron, Alejandro Membreno. If you would like to support the work of Broadway Nation, I'll have information at the end of the podcast about how you, too, can become a patron. In 1997, when Sheldon was appointed the artistic director of the Pasadena Playhouse, he became the first black person to lead a major theater company in Southern California, and one of only three artists of color to hold that position nationwide. As he writes in his book, in the words of a song from Hallelujah Baby, being good wasn't going to be good enough. Aiming for greatness was required, as there were those who were there to support that goal, and there were others who most certainly were waiting for me to fail. In our last episode, Sheldon shared with us how he met the many challenges of revitalizing what at the time was a somewhat faded theater company and successfully transforming both its audience and its artistic mission. And he was able to accomplish all of that despite the severe financial challenges that the Playhouse faced, mostly due to a large loan that had been taken out decades earlier. As we ended that episode, Sheldon was telling us how a decade into his tenure at the Playhouse, those economic problems finally became so overwhelming that it was decided that the Playhouse needed to close down for a time and take what Sheldon called an intermission— but it was not at all clear to him or anyone else if the Pasadena Playhouse's curtain would ever go up again on a second act. And that's where we pick up our conversation today. Here we go. Why did you think it was necessary to shut down? What was the effect that was needed? We needed to get rid of an age-old debt load that had existed over many years that, frankly, had been paid off in interest times and times over. So we needed to go through, and you know, I learned all of this. I knew none of this. (laughs) 
you know, all of this business stuff. We needed to go through what's described as a limited bankruptcy process to eliminate that debt load, which was almost entirely of those old bank loans and or to pay off some specific debts to get those off the books. The other thing we had to do was to honor the subscription debt that was due during the time that we closed. So you couldn't just close and say, all that subscription money you gave us, we're just keeping. No, we had to deliver those plays without any more income coming in. So you had to raise enough money, number one, to produce those plays and to produce those plays without depending on subscription dollars. You could sell single tickets, but the subscribers had to get those plays for free. They'd already paid for them. They had already paid for them. Now, fortunately, now this was a blessing. This was one of the many good things that happened. You had to go to the subscribers and you had to say, okay, we're going to try to come back, but we're not promising you that you will. Do you want your money back? If you want your money back, we're going to have to find a way to give you your money back. Or you can trust us and stick with us and we'll give you the plays when we come back. Mm-hmm. Out of thousands of subscribers, only about 50 people said, I want the money back. The other said, oh, no, 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 no. We want you to survive. We just want the plays when you're ready to do them again. That kind of goodwill, you can't put any kind of price tag on that. And in fact, if the thousands had said, we want our money back instead of we'll wait for the plays, I don't know how we would have dealt with that, frankly. Uh, probably would have put you under right, so, yeah yeah but is that kind of loyalty from the audience that was so wonderful and also answered the question does anybody care yes they did care they did care about the theater and they did want it to survive when as you say in your book part of this was to demonstrate to the community and i guess to the world that people cared about the theater enough to help it to revive it yes. to bring it back and this is a good example of that and then of course the other good example was we got some unexpected but major major donations which really kept us afloat now My big fear was that we would reopen and be a lesser theater. That, to me, personally, would have been worse. But fortunately, we were able to come out of bankruptcy and quickly became as substantial a theater as we had been before and produced at the same level rather than at a lesser level. I want to follow up on that, but I also want to talk a little bit more about this dark period, as you call it. One of the horrible aspects of this dark period was the idea that the theater was failing got tied into some racist feelings that were already there about you and your programming. Yeah, that was the darkest of the dark period. Shortly after we announced that we were closing, a number of people, not a small number of people, a rather substantial number of people started to say that the reason Pasadena Playhouse had to close was because of my Black agenda. And all of these Black plays that I was doing, that I was forcing onto an audience that didn't want them, were the reason that nobody was coming to the theater anymore and You know, nobody was supporting the theater anymore. Well, the fact is that many of those productions were the things that kept the theater alive during some tough times, were some of our biggest sellers and most popular productions. But in the midst of that process, you can't argue with that kind of odious statement. You can't fight back because then you just sound defensive and you sound like you have something to feel guilty about. What makes it even worse is it wasn't true on two fronts. It wasn't true that those productions were weighing the theater down. They were, as you just said, among the biggest successes that the theater had. And they weren't even anywhere near the majority of the programming. 
They weren't the majority of the programming. And as I said before, the real reason for the financial problems was a debt load from decades before. So none of it was true. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and therefore more painful and even more debilitating because you couldn't fight back. And there were certain things that you just couldn't say legally as part of this legal process that was going on. That was really a terrible time. And as I said in the book, that's what set me off and sitting in the dark <laughs> in the theater with the ghost light in me, just sort of willing the theater back into existence. When you get interviewed by the press during this time, which turns out to be a fateful stroke of luck. Yes. A wonderful reporter named Pat Morrison came to me, fortunately believing that the theater was going to come out of this intermission. And she said, what is it going to take for the theater to get back up and running. And I'll be honest, that was early in the process, so I didn't really know. But I quickly calculated in my head, well, if we can get $2 million together and present that to our judge in the process, I believe that could get us open again. And for a theater that's closed, raising $2 million is a lot of money. But she printed that and it was in the LA Times editorial section, interestingly, not the entertainment section. And about two days after it was printed, I got a phone call from someone who said, is it true that this is what the theater needs to reopen? And I said, yes, it is true. And they said, well, my wife and I will give you half of that. We will give you a million dollars if you're able to match the million dollars from within the community and other supporters. And this is someone you don't know at this point. This is someone I had met, but I don't know well. And I certainly don't know that they have this affinity for the playoffs. And it's someone who turns out to be quite famous and well-known. The man on the other end of the phone was Mike Stoller of Lieber and Stoller, the great songwriters. His wife, Corky Hale Stoller, who is also a great jazz musician. She's the one who read the article and said, I want to do something. I want to help Sheldon and I want to help this theater. And another gracious donor came up with half of that match pretty quickly. And then it was our board. Our board really pulled together and said, OK, we've got another $500,000 to go and we're going to make it happen. And that is what helped to move us through the process much more quickly than anybody anticipated. Amazing. And the mystery of it all, because you weren't allowed to reveal who the donors were. Yes. For a while, they said that they wanted it to be an anonymous donation. They didn't want credit or praise or anything. Eventually, they did let us announce it and celebrate them at a gala and all of that. But initially, I kept saying an anonymous donation. And of course, that made people not believe me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, sure. There's some anonymous million dollar donor. Yeah, sure. <laughs> It's a great story. And you call the next chapter coming out of the dark. And you also quote the lyric, the best is yet to come. And I think that's true because you do get back to work in a major way. And as yes. you said before, not in a lesser way. Yeah, there was a little period in there where the theater community, the national theater community that I, by that time, built up quite a good relationship with, was a little skeptical. Well, you know, if we work with them, will they actually deliver the production? Foundations were saying, if we give you money, will the theater actually stay open? But goodwill and tenacity turned us around that corner. And we were really solidly back in business very, very quickly, doing 
big productions again, big ambitious work again, some of it with your theater in co-productions with Fifth Avenue Theater and Arena Stage in Washington and the Alliance. And so that fear of mine that we were going to come back a lesser producing organization was eradicated pretty quickly. I certainly celebrated that part of it. Don't go away. Sheldon and I will be right back. Out on the tree of life, I just picked me a plum. You came along and everything's starting to hum. Still, it's a real good bet. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come and babe, won't it be fine? Hi, this is David Armstrong. And even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make everyday delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. Another road in another show In Philly, Boston, or Baltimore And what were some of those productions that you produced in the revival of the theater? We did a wonderful production, uh, a musical version of Oliver Twist that Debbie Allen directed called Twist. That was a very big, ambitious production. We did Waterfall, which was a production that we did with Fifth Avenue Theater. One of the most exciting things we did was not the first, but the production of A Night with Janis Joplin right before it moved to Broadway. And that was so great, David, because suddenly... 
after having sat in that dark theater and being the only person sitting there, suddenly the theater was absolutely packed with people cheering and rocking out and dancing in the aisles and this incredible energy coming from the show on the stage and from the audience that really said, okay, this theater is absolutely alive once again in an incredibly exciting and wonderful way. And you also did one of your dream projects during that time. Yes. What was that dream project? It had always been my desire to do a production of Kiss Me Kate, primarily with Black actor singers, not just as a trick. I sometimes call productions like that dipped in chocolate. But, you know, I think you have to have a reason to do that. And I was really doing it as an homage to Black touring companies in the 30s and 40s. There was a tradition of taking classical material and applying jazz and, you know, the rhythm of the African-American culture to them. So you had things like a musical version of A Midsummer Night's Dream called Swing in the Dream with Louis Armstrong and the Hot Mikado with Bilbo Jangles Robinson and even the Voodoo Macbeth that Orson Welles did. But there was a tradition of taking classical material and adapting it to the musical theater. And people forget that in Kiss Me Kate, they are doing a musical version of Taming of the Shrew. They're not doing the play Taming of the Shrew. So even that was a great complement and natural fit for this concept. And you had an incredible cast of dynamic Black performers. I did. Wonderful cast, headed by Wayne Brady as Fred Petruchio and Merle Dandridge as Lily and Kate, who were just so brilliant and great company leaders. And that's so important to have the people in the leads literally (laughs) not just play the lead, but lead the company, you know, and establish a spirit for the work and a level of artistry for the work. So in spite of this renewed success that you're having, well-deserved, you start to, in the back of your head, think it may be time to go on to something else. What was the thinking behind that? Well, in truth, maybe nobody knew it, but I was actually thinking it before the dark period. I'd always said that I was going to stay at the theater in sort of five-year increments, you know, that I would go, mm-hmm. oh, this will be nice for five years. And after that five years, I say, okay, maybe I'll stay another five. Then I say, all right, I'm going to stay another five to 15, but that's it. And around about year 14 or 15, every time I would take a breath to say I'm leaving, something would happen. You know, either a managing director, executive director would announce that they were leaving, or we would get a good grant, which had to be worked on over a multi-year period, or some challenge would occur that kept me from leaving. But I always felt that it was important not to stay around for 35 years, as a previous generation of artistic directors had done, to not stay too long at the fair, so to speak. Mm-hmm. That was just healthy, healthy for me, but also healthy for the organization to have a new vision and a new sensibility. After we came out of the dark, I really really decided that it was time to move on. And also the focus in all American theaters became so much about the money and hit making and how do you survive and yet still have some sense of adventure and daring about your theater. And boards seem less and less inclined to support the daring and the adventure and more inclined to depend on the hits. And it was just tiring, frankly. It got to be just tiring and exhausting. I'm right there with you. 
And I think that this may be, in some ways, the most important part of the book, because I think it shines a light on something that hasn't been talked about in the public enough. Among artistic directors, certainly it's been talked about over and over and over again. But this change in boards that happened over, what, the last 20 years, maybe not even that long, has been in the way boards think, way the board members think, and who those board members are, has made producing theater very, very hard to do, very challenging, and now is still a big problem, even though we are focusing on other problems at the moment, which are also equally valid. Yeah. The beginning of this movement of resident theater companies or regional theater companies was all about establishing companies that would be about their communities and serving their communities with their art and delivering work that was new and fresh and exciting for the community and developing art that perhaps would go on to other theaters or New York or around the world or whatever. And that's what the board was there to do. The board was to help serve that mission. Somewhere around the time that the theater went dark and certainly the years after that, it seemed that the concentration has become all about the money and less about the art. They want the art to be good, I'm not saying that, but they're not understanding that the art is not self-supporting and cannot be. In the same way that people understand there is no profit university, there is no profit hospital, there is no profit ballet company or opera company. Somehow, and I think it's because there is something called Broadway that is a profit center, people tend to think The theaters can exist by making hits and selling a lot of tickets. Well, that's really impossible. (laughs) Number one, your runs are not long enough, and there is no way to predict that everything is going to be a hit. You certainly can't predict that if you're trying to do new work and exciting work and different work. So that shift in thinking is very, very dangerous for the American theater as a whole. And boards have started to, I believe, more and more relinquish the responsibility for supporting the dream of making art in favor of becoming fiscal protectors. You know, absolutely. And you got a new board chair who came with this philosophy and belief, which made things very, very difficult. You made things very, very difficult and, you know, started to say things like, well, why can't you just do what they do on Broadway? I said, well, what is that? And he said, well, they just choose plays that make hits all the time, which, of course, we know how naive I'll use that word is. The latest figures, I believe, are one out of every five shows makes its money back, even returns its investment on Broadway. Exactly. So, you know, it came to the point, and this was late in my game as artistic director, when I had to say, you're in the banking business, and I'm sure you're very good at the banking business. I would never assume that I should come into your office and tell you how to run your banking business. Please don't come into mine and tell me how to run the theater. I've been at this a long time, and I am fiscally responsible. I do understand the business part of it, but I also understand that it's not a bank. (laughs) You know, I understand that part of what we do is to support daring and adventure without constantly have to worry about how many tickets do we sell. Absolutely. We share many of those same frustrations. (laughs) 
The only thing that was uh, somewhat comforting about it was I ran into Gordon Davidson right before he retired, and he said the same thing. He said, you know, I'm just a little tired of people being suspect of my ability to run this organization. I know what I'm doing. I do know how to do this, and I do it very, very well. But I need that partnership, and that's what I constantly have to get the board to understand. I'm not working for them. I'm working with them. We are in partnership to keep this noble endeavor going. Exactly. You are made to feel like there's no trust. You hired me to do this job. If you don't think I can do this job, then you should fire me. But in the meantime, you should listen to what I'm saying about how this business works. Yes, yes. You should be there to support my vision and to adopt my vision. And if you don't like the vision, change the artistic director. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I worry right now with so many new artistic directors being given these positions, which is fantastic, that those burdens on top of every other burden are going to be really challenging for them to handle. I think so, too. Outside of the challenges that we've always had, the extraordinary challenges brought on, number one, by COVID and people's feeling about even going into a theater, plus the extraordinary expenses brought on by COVID regulations, and then the additional expenses that inflation has brought on with lumber costs, material costs, electric bill costs. The challenges of running a theater now are just overwhelming. I applaud the bravery of anybody who's willing to do it during this particular moment in time and constantly sending them strength that they can hold on long enough because I know how hard it was even without the current contemporary challenges. I applaud anybody who has the bravery or the craziness to try to run a theater company right now. One of the most successful ventures of your career was, again, combining these diverse elements, Shakespeare, musical theater. You combined all these elements together to create a new vision that you've gone back to several times over your career. Talk a little bit about Play On. It really started at the Old Globe Theater, and Jack O'Brien said the magic words that any director wants to hear, which is, I want you to do a big project, honey, something really big. <laughs> Coming into Grand Central Station, New York, New York. That's just music to your ears. Which way, Harlem? Which way, Harlem? Don't go downtown. Don't go uptown. You must 
So I had seen a production at the National Theatre Company in New York of Time and of Athens that used Duke Ellington's Shakespeare suite as the underscore. And I thought it was fascinating and delicious and wonderful. So I said, okay, I'll do my favorite play, Twelfth Night, that way. And that would have been fine, but I thought not quite ambitious enough. I was taking a walk in the woods behind my parents' home in North Carolina and just had one of those light bulb moments where literally I just said, Twelfth Night, Shakespeare, Harlem in the 30s, Duke Ellington songs. And that got me started. (laughs) I went about writing a scenario for a show based on the Twelfth Night plot and the Twelfth Night characters and told myself that I would only move forward with this if I could validly tell the story and advance the character with Duke Ellington songs. And I didn't know if I could really find parallel songs to Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, but Duke Ellington was so inexhaustible in his catalog that if I just kept digging, I could always find what I needed. Never treats me sweet and gentle The way she should I I will say, if you go back and really examine it, there are songs in the show that exactly parallel monologues or soliloquies in Twelfth Night. I really did get Twelfth Night to sing through Duke Ellington songs set in Harlem in the 30s. when we did the show at the Old Globe, talking to the casting director, you're always asking, well, give me your dream list. And I said, well, it would be great if I could get Tanya Pinkins and Andre DeShields and Larry Marshall. Oh, and somebody like Carl Anderson. <laughs> and almost to a person, every one of those people was in the original production at the Old Globe and then in the Broadway production. Again, a moment of heaven, theatrical heaven for me to be doing this dream project with all those great people. And this dream project takes you to Broadway. Then you recreate the show at the Pasadena Playhouse at a very key moment as well. Yeah, at one of those moments where finances, again, were an issue and we were running ahead of that snowball. And I kind of said, well, if we're going to go down, I want to go down flaming, (laughs) you know, not just (laughs) meekly and quietly, but let's do something big and bold. And I went out and found some extra money to do a production of Play On at Pasadena. Everybody told me that it was far too ambitious and I was being crazy, but I just had an instinct, and it's something I talk about in the book, that sometimes you just got to operate by your instincts, that if we could do it right, and I believed we could, it was really going to take off in Los Angeles. I found the money to put it together and got a great cast out here of Los Angeles musical performers and sweated it out, of course, until the day after opening when we got this really glowing review. And again, this was early in my tenure at Pasadena Playhouse was certainly great for the theater, but also a great thing for me early in my tenure at the theater. I love that you call it this theatrical gut sense that you have to have as an artistic director to make bold choices like that sometimes, which might seem a little crazy or a little foolhardy, but that's part of the job as I define it, is you're supposed to be able to tap into the zeitgeist of that moment to know what to do. 
No, that's true. I don't think you can be an artist. And I don't think that you can be an artistic director operating only from intellect and logic, even. <laughs> there are moments when it's got to be about the feeling of something, the instinct, the inner voice, which is just telling you, go this way, go down this path, go in this direction. You've got to be a combination of secure enough and crazy enough to listen to that inner voice and know that that inner voice is there to serve you. And fortunately for much of my career, that inner voice has served me very well. Well, and I think that is what is so wonderfully told in your new book, My Own Directions, A Black Man's Journey in the American Theater. Sheldon Epps, thank you so much for joining us today on Broadway Nation. Thank you, David. It's been a great conversation. Thanks so much. What good is melody? What good is music? If it ain't possessing something sweet. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. It don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. If you're in the swing of this podcast, I invite you to become a patron of Broadway Nation. For a contribution of just $7 a month, you can receive exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And in fact, I often record nearly twice as much conversation as ends up in the podcast version. You will also have access to additional in-depth conversations with my frequent co-host, Albert Evans, that have not been featured on Broadway Nation. And all patrons will receive special on-air shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for this podcast. To join, go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. That's S-U-P-E-R-C-A-S-T dot tech. Or you can find the link in the show notes to this episode or in our Broadway Nation Facebook group, which I also invite you to join. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, to KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. One, two, it makes no difference if it's sweet or hot. Just give that rhythm everything you've got. It don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Do what, 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 do I? That's it. Do I? 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 Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to the quiet part out loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists. What they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There is enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R E R I S E T H E A T R E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 